The title of our message today is Stephen's Victorious Death. And this is not a unique title to what we're doing tonight. This has been something that has been said about the death of Stephen for hundreds of years, that it was a victorious death. Now, this is the true story of the first martyr in the history of the church. And remember, Jesus founded the church. The church is the ecclesia. That's a Greek word, which, which means council. It was a group of people that met together and had authority in a city. And as a church, we have authority spiritually. And it's important for us to understand that. And he becomes the first martyr. It has not, it probably hasn't even been a year yet since the resurrection of Christ when there is the first martyr. Now, Stephen will not be the last. Millions of Christians will follow him in his glorious death. And there are people today that are giving their lives for their faith in Christ. The number of Christians killed for their faith today is a source of contention. There are people who want to play down the numbers. I don't know whether there are people that want to push the numbers up, but you get a lot of different numbers when you start looking at how many people are dying today for their faith. And there seems to be some kind of covering up of deaths, especially in Islamic nations. Now, I don't know if there really is, but there certainly seems like there is, mostly in Africa, Nigeria especially, but also in the Middle East. Uh, there's a, I have a little uh, clip to read here from the ACLJ, American Center of Law and Justice. You guys familiar with that? How I many of you guys are familiar with it? All right, so quite a few of you. So here's what they have to say about what's taking place in the world today with, with people giving their lives for Christ. Christians in places like Pakistan and Nigeria face growing mob violent, violence, enslavement, and extrajudicial hangings. Being a Christian in these nations can result in death. They are known as some of the most dangerous places for Christians. 90% of all Christians murdered for their faith are killed in one nation. That's Nigeria. Probably to the tune of 50,000 people, maybe more. But, uh, it says um, uh, jihadist militants are literally hunting them down. Yet Biden removed Nigeria from the critical persecution watch list. Now, um, no one knows the real numbers. They're much larger than Open Doors, who's very conservative, says there's about 5,000 Christians that are killed every year. But we know the number is much larger than that with th things that are happening in Afghanistan, in Iran, where there is not, there's, there's not only persecution of Christians, but there, the church is growing there. The evangelical church is growing at a rapid rate there. People have uh, in Iran have seen the violence of Islam and are leaving the mosques and turning to Christ in record numbers. But when they do, they, they, grow, they take the chance of becoming one of the martyrs, actually losing their lives and more, uh, many other kinds of persecution where the, the killing of them for Christ is, is one thing. There are other persecutions that go along with that. Open Door says there's around 300 million Christians that are living under heavy persecution in the world today. Now, with that in mind, how many people are giving their lives for Christ how blessed we are to live here in the United States where we haven't seen a great number of persecution. That may change. Let's start by looking at what the Bible has to tell us about laying down your life for Christ. In John 16, 1 and 2, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you 
that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming when whoever kills you will think that they are offering God service. And that's what's happening today. It was happening in their day. It happened to Stephen. They thought they were offering God service. It's happening in our day in militant Islam nations. Now, I don't want to paint Islam with a broad brush. There are a lot that are in Islam that are not violent, but there are those who are, and I don't think it should be ignored. Romans 8, 35 and 37 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now here he says that when you give your life for Christ, you are more than a conqueror in Christ. Revelation 17, 6, talking about mystery Babylon, it says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled in great amazement. This, this mystery Babylon is a, is a religious and an economic entity that is in the last days. And there will be a great martyrdom in the last days. Also, the entire world becomes rich. There's a great economic boom in the last days, but also a great martyrdom for many Christians. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Whatever you are going through, whatever you are facing, no matter how dark it is, it is not to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us in Christ. And that is the truth with this young man, this leader in the church by the name of Stephen. Now, it's been about a year since the resurrection of Christ, most believe under a year at this point. The church started with, uh, with, uh, within 50 days of the resurrection by adding 3,000 people to the church on the day that it was born on the day of Pentecost. A few more thousand within a few days, and God added daily to those who were being saved. We are then told that Jerusalem is filled with the doctrine that comes from the enemies of Christ, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. And then we're told that it spread to the cities around Jerusalem. So within a year, it was tens of thousands of people. They were ministering to many people. They were feeding the widows, taking care of them. But there was opposition. And we've seen this as we made our way through the book of Acts. There, that was from the same leaders, slanderers, false accusers who arrested and crucified Christ. And Stephen will stand in front of these very same people. Now, the first time they arrested them, you remember, they warned them, no longer preach in the name of Jesus or we're going to beat you, which is an open flogging. They would be publicly flogged. The second time they arrested them, they warned them again. They wanted to kill them. But you remember that Gamaliel, uh, a rabbi with wisdom, kind of gave them the advice to leave them alone. Rather than leaving them alone, the Bible says they flogged them and they released them, which means they beat them openly, probably with rods, laying them down on the ground in a public square and beating them openly and releasing them. Now, when they were warned, don't, don't tell anybody else about Jesus, the Bible says that they prayed for boldness. 
and the room that they were in was shaken and they spoke the word of God with all boldness. I love that. Instead of praying, God, don't let me get hurt. They're like, let us be bold. When they were beaten for Christ, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. What an what a attitude to have as a Christian. Now, one of their leaders, Stephen, who is a deacon in the church, he helped to take care of the widows, is dragged before the court, falsely accused of blasphemy. Stephen had an interaction with a group called the Synagogue of the Freedmen, giving a defense for his faith. He was an apologist in his day. And again, I encourage you to do what you can do to be able to educate yourself, to be able to give a defense for the hope that is in you. We live in a unique time when there is so much evidence for the existence of God, for Jesus, for the empty tomb, uh, that, that scholars today tell us that Jesus was a real person, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that the tomb was empty on that third day. And we have the evidence of the church that sprang up so quickly. Uh, and um, the Unshaken Conference is something you could go to. Uh, you could read, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Frank Turek and Norman Geisler. Uh, you could, um, I'm reading um, uh, uh, William Lane's Craig's book right now. Uh, I can't remember uh, what the title is, but I'll let you know it's more to the point. But it's really good, but it's more of a philosophy than a biblical aspect of it. Also, uh, there's a book by, um, by Greg Kokel called Tactics, which teaches you how to interact when a question arises about Christ and how you can have conversations with people on difficult topics. You know, we're taught not to talk about religion or politics, but he teaches us how to have that interaction with family and friends that we care about, how to truly be caring, how to ask questions, really interested in what they're going to say, not just so you can open up and interject, but so that you can really hear them and, and have a real interaction. Now, the freedmen could not resist his wisdom, is what the Bible says. He gave such wisdom from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Messiah, the chosen one, as he calls it. So they attacked him personally, they falsely accused him, and they arrested him. The charge was blasphemy, just like the charges brought before Jesus, blasphemy of God, of Moses, of the law, and of the temple. Those were his four charges. We read them in chapter six. There's a little section there. I won't reread them again today that tells us that that is what he was charged. And when you look at this entire chapter and you see his whole defense, he starts with Abraham and God's promises and speaks highly of God. Then goes to the law and Moses and he speaks highly of Moses. But he also puts in there how the fathers rejected as, uh, on, on every step of the way. He not only his respect for God, his respect for Moses, his respect for the law, and his respect for the temple is seen here. But he also shows the forefathers rejected. Let me give you some examples. He says in Acts 7.35, this is in his defense. This Moses, who they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge, is the one God sent to be ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared in the bush. Now, he's going to make a connection. They rejected Moses and you guys are rejecting Christ. In Acts 7, 38 and 39, he says, and this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, the ones who received the living oracles to give us whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. 
Once again, he brings up, they received the law, the living oracles. They were entrusted to bring forward to them, but they rejected them. And then Acts 7, 42 and 43, he says this, then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? The answer to that is yes, they did. But then he says this, you also took up the temple of Molech. He was one of the Baals, Baal Molech. The star of your God, Riphion, which is another false God in, in their area, regional God. Images which you made for to worship and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. In other places, he says, you committed adultery. You have committed fornication. In the Bible, idolatry is connected to fornication. It's used as an analogy, even in the New Testament. The Bible says, don't love this world or the things in this world. Don't you know that if you love this world, you are enmity with God, adulterers and adulteresses, using the same that if we live for the world instead of for Christ, we are committing that spiritual adultery against God. And so he takes them away to Babylon for that reason. Now we'll come back to this in a few minutes. We'll see how he ties in the rejection a little bit later on. But let's take a look at the accusation of blasphemy of the temple. We've seen the promise of God through Abraham. We've seen his respect for Moses. We've seen him talk about giving the law and his respect for the law that the fathers rejected. But now he's going to talk about the final charge against him was blasphemy of the temple. Acts 7, 44. Our fathers had the tabernacles, had the tabernacle of witness, not tabernacles. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. When Moses was up on the mountain, he was given the layout, the pattern of how they were to make the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent that held everything the temple was going to hold. It had an altar. It had the holies of holies. It had the Ark of the Covenant. It had the incense altar in it. It had a curtain that separated. It was made out of beautiful materials and covered in gold. And they would take it with them. They could take down that tent and they could take it as they traveled in the wilderness for 40 years. But he had to make it according to the model because the the tabernacle and later on the temple was a type or a picture of heaven. When you study the tabernacle or the temple and the different things in it, like for example, the incense altar is an example of the prayers of the saints that are always rising up before God. Our prayers are always going before him and so on. So he talks about this, them receiving the tabernacle. Verse 45, which our fathers having received in turn also brought with Joshua into the land to possess by the, by the Gentiles whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David. So again, he's moving through history quickly, which is what he's done this whole time, talking about the temple being passed down from Moses to Joshua to David. David obviously wants to build a temple, but he can't. It says, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for God, the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the most high does not dwell in temples made with hands, As the prophets say, heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. So after talking about the temple being built, he now quotes scripture to them. And how are they going to call scripture blasphemy? That God doesn't live in buildings made with hands. 
Yes, God's presence was in the temple. God's presence had left during the days of Ezekiel, but that was not God. That was his presence with the people and, and a true presence, but that's not all that God is. He doesn't dwell in buildings made with hands. The Most High, um, uh, it goes on to say, as the prophets say, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all things? God created our universe. How are you going to put him in a little temple on top of Mount Moriah and say that's where God is? The Bible says that God measures the universe with the span of his hands. That's like nine inches from your pinky to your thumb. That's a span. And God measures, God goes, how big is the universe? We go, man, it's, it's 13.5 billion years that way, 13.5 billion years that way, and expanding. And God goes, eh, it's that big. And we can't comprehend it. And yet God knows all the hairs on your head and he's kept every tear you've ever cried. He knows them all. He knows, your, he knows you intimately. And yet he is so big. Now with this, his defense is done. He's spoken of what he believes about the temple. It's not blasphemy. He said nothing blasphemous. He knows how the temple came. He knows the word of God well. And his, fin is, his defense is over. However, he has an accusation of his own. He's now going to turn to them and accuse them. They accuse him of blasphemy. In essence, he's going to say, you are the blasphemers. Here's what he says. Verse 51. This is, this is the Sanhedrin. The high priest is here. The chief priests are here. These are the 70 that condemned Jesus to death before they brought him to Pilate. And he says to them, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and ears. Now, in case you don't know, in, in the Jewish mind, to call someone uncircumcised is an insult. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. Your fathers rejected and you guys have always resisted the Holy Spirit. These are the leaders of Israel in Jerusalem, but they have always resisted. Verse 52, which the prophets did, which the prophets did, your fathers uh, not, oh, which of your, which of, let me read what it says. Just slow down enough to read it. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, to whom you now have become betrayers and murderers. He's calling them out to their face on murdering Jesus, reminding them less than a year later that they had an early morning council. They had already had midnight trials and now they have one to validate it in the day because it's illegal to have trials at night. And he reminds them that they handed him over to Pilate and murdered him. He goes on to say in verse 53, who have received the law by the direction of angel, oh, excuse me, in verse 54, where am I at? 53, okay. Um, you betrayed and murderers who have, who have received the law by the direction of angels and not kept it. You guys are like your fathers. You received the oracle, you received the law, but you haven't kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Now that sounds like it's a good thing, right? Like you hear something and you're like cut to the heart and you're like, oh, I want to repent. But that's not what it is. Cut to the heart means he got him right where it hurts. He said these things to him and it just got him. They were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. I'm not even quite sure what that would look like to have the 70 leaders of Israel and the high priest gnashing at you with their teeth. 
but he being full of the Holy Spirit. So you have Stephen, huge contrast to these 70 men. We see several of them here. They are religious leaders in the flesh, full of anger and jeering and gnashing. Stephen is a religious leader full of the Holy Spirit. They are false believers, not really serving God. Stephen is a true believer. They gnash at him with their teeth. And the Bible says Stephen gazes up into heaven. Now we can learn a lot from the attitude that Stephen had in the ministry in his death. Or we can learn a lot from the attitude Stephen had in his death. He didn't, he, he told him as it was, but we also know they had the face of an angel. And we also know that he never got in the flesh. He told the truth, but he never got angry. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 says, And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those in opposition, if God perhaps will grant repentance so that they may know the truth. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel. We want to give arguments for the faith that we have, the defense, but not fighting, not quarreling, not argumentative. Let me also say that when it comes to things that we believe that are different. It, it's not just the faith that we don't quarrel over. We don't quarrel and we don't fight. Now, this might shock you a little bit, but when I was younger, I used to like to argue. I used to want to argue with people. And I had learned very early the proper use of tongues in church. And I was going to a Pentecostal church that didn't use tongues properly. And we would go to Denny's after, Wednesday, after the Wednesday night service. And so I was there, the worship leader was there, and I began to say to her, you guys are just using tongues wrong, and I want to show you, open up my Bible. Now, Lisa, my future wife, was there. She said I made her sick to her stomach that night. She said, I want to just get up and leave because I have my Bible open, I'm arguing with her, and I'm going through the whole thing. And afterwards, an older guy came up to me, he was probably 40, and he said, <laughs> perspective, right? Uh, I'm, I'm like 20 at this point. I really was before I was married. So 19, 20 years old. And um, he said to me, you are right about tongues. What you, what you read was right. That's how, that is how Paul said to use it. But he said, but you could never be more wrong. And then he read me this verse. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle at all, able to teach. Had he hit me, it couldn't have struck me any harder. It's one of those times when the word of God just grabbed me and I realized I have the wrong heart. I have the wrong attitude and I had to repent. And I tell people now, I don't want to argue. I, I don't want to, I, I want to preach the truth. I want to preach the truth in a convincing way so people believe the truth, but I have no goal to persuade anyone. I, you, this is the truth. Receive it or don't receive it. And when people want to argue with me, I want to get as far away from that as possible I tell them, I'll share with you what I believe if you want to know it. And I'll listen to what you believe. I'll have open ears, but I don't want to argue. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if anyone is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So in leadership in the church, when you're correcting someone that's in sin, you're to go to them gently and consider yourself. 1 Peter 3.15 says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you of the reason for the hope that is in you 
That's the one I quoted before the service. With meekness and fear. So even when we're talking to an atheist who maybe is attacking us and, and we're, we're coming back with information, we're to be meek. What is meekness? Strength under control. You know your position, but you are meek. And even with fear, which is the word fear. It's not the word respect. It's the word fear. It means that when we are representing God and souls are at stake, because when we're giving a defense for our faith, they could get saved, that we do it with fear because we're representing God. Finally, Galatians 5, and 23, give us the fruit of the spirit. And this is what Stephen has. I'm not saying that Stephen didn't get angry because there is be angry and don't sin. I'm saying he didn't have an outburst of anger because that would be of the flesh. Luke 22, excuse me, Galatians 5, and 23, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. This is what we as Christians, this is how we're to respond. And when you read the accounts of martyrs in the past, you read the way that they responded. And many of them, the ones we hear about, the ones that have been retained, responded with these even as they faced death. Even as they were dying for their faith, the Holy Spirit was still in them. What does it say? They gnashed at him with their teeth, but he gazed up to heaven full of the Holy Spirit. Finally, it says, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Don't miss that. They had been, they had accused him of blaspheming God. But now for Stephen, he sees the glory of God. He saw the throne. He saw what Isaiah saw when he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the glory of his robe filled the temple. And I said, woe am I, I am undone for I'm a man of unclean lips. He saw what Ezekiel saw when he saw that the, the, the chariot of throne of God, which I think is really great. God's got a throne with wheels. The Bible says there's fire shooting forth from it. For a car guy, that's great. It's great news. He gazed up into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, the New Testament talks about Jesus sitting at God's right hand 16 times. Two times, and we're gonna read them both tonight, it talks about him standing. Four or five more times, it says at his right hand. So the New Testament is full of telling us that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. It talks about him being victorious. It talks about him being equal. It talks about him being on the throne. Let me give you a couple of these verses. Luke 22, 66 through 70. It says, if you are Christ, tell us. These are the Pharisees. If you are the Christ, tell us. These are the, this is the Sanhedrin. This is the trial of Jesus. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the power of God. The Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus' favorite name for himself was the Son of Man. He, they knew who the Son of Man was from the book of Daniel. Daniel says, I looked and I saw and thrones were set up, Daniel chapter 7, and the Ancient of Days was seated and the Son of Man came on the clouds. This is the Old Testament. We talk about the complexity of God and the Trinity in the Old Testament. This is one of the passages. The Son of Man comes on the clouds and joins the Ancient of Days and is given a kingdom and a power forever. And then they say to him, are you then the Son of God? They ask him directly. 
And he said to them, you rightly say I am. So for those who say that Jesus never declared that he was God, here it is. You say, no, he's saying he's the son of God. Hebrews chapter one, to which of the angels did he say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. God, your God has anointed you. God calls the son of God, God in Hebrews chapter one. And Jesus admits to being the son of God here before the Sanhedrin who are about to have him killed. Now, Psalms 110, one and two says, the Lord said to my Lord, here's, here's the verse I just quoted, set at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of strength to Zion and rule in the midst of the enemies. So set at my right hand. These guys knew that. They knew when Stephen said, I see the son of man standing at the right hand of the father. Verse 57, then they cried out with a loud, then he cried out with a loud voice. Excuse me. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. These 70 men gnash at their teeth, put their fingers in their ears or cup their hands over them while they're gnashing their teeth and rush at him. The word for rush at him here is the same word that's used for the pigs that ran off the cliff. The same Greek word. They come at him at full speed. They just, they are murderous in their hearts when they hear him say that they see Jesus sitting by the right hand of God because they know what that means. And they ran at him in one accord and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Now, at this point, I've had people ask me, I thought they couldn't kill people. I thought they couldn't because they got to take Jesus to Pilate. But here they go out and they stone Stephen right away. So which is it? Did they have the right to execute or didn't they? They did have the right of execution removed from them. Uh, sometime in the 20s, Jesus was, was uh, resurrected in 32 or 33. Some believe 31, but around that time. Um, however, they were afraid of Jesus. Jesus had had a ministry for three years, had done miracles, had raised people from the dead, had taught. They were afraid of the crowds. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem the Sunday before he was crucified, the crowds hailed him as king. They were afraid. In fact, they said when Jesus came in on Palm Sunday, look, we've accomplished nothing. The masses have gone after him. So they handed him over to Pilate to do their dirty work. They tried to stone Jesus early on in his ministry. They did stone people. They did execute people. Even though it wasn't their right to do it, it is mob violence. And they're doing it. When Jesus was in the synagogue in Nazareth, he says to them today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. He reads them a messianic passage out of Isaiah, Isaiah 61. They grab him, rush him out. They're going to throw him over a cliff and they're going to stone him. But the Bible says he passed through them because it was not yet his time. So they did do this. So don't think because they stoned Stephen, that means that they couldn't have stoned Jesus. They were afraid of the people because of the ministry of Jesus. Stephen had a ministry that was powerful, but much less influential than what Jesus's was. So finally it says, and the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is Paul, the apostle, still in Judaism, gnashing at his teeth, wholeheartedly agreeing to the death of Stephen. 
This will be one who will lead the church. He'll write most of the New Testament. They laid their coats to be guarded by a young man named Saul. And I don't think what we think about Paul often as being a contemporary of Jesus because he comes on the scene after the resurrection of Christ, but he is. In Acts 8, 3, it says, as for Saul, he made havoc on the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Saul not only had these at his feet, but he actually went out with zeal and became the fulfillment of what Jesus said. The day is coming when they will kill you and think they are offering God service. Paul refers to himself as the chief of sinners, but he did it out of zeal. Acts 9, 1 and, 1 and 2 says, Then Saul, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from the synagogue of Damascus so, he found, so that if he found any who were on, of the way, which is what Christianity was called in the book of Acts, the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he wants to go. Now they've left Jerusalem because of the per persecution and he wants to bring them back. This is a man who will be radically changed. This is why the salvation and, and the, the apostleship of Paul, the fact that he converted to Christ at all, that he would give up Judaism and he would pick up a whole new set of things. He would give up the, the Passover and pick up communion. He would give up what he had been brought up with and he would pick up Christianity, which was anathema to them. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 says of Paul, for I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Do you know when Paul first got saved, he tried to go meet with the apostles, they wouldn't meet with him. They were like, uh-uh, not that guy. Not that guy. And Barnabas came along. We'll get there. Philippians 3, 5 and 6 says of Paul, circumcised the eighth day, he's speaking of himself, circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, the stock of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, both my parents were Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. We learned that he was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is of the law, blameless. I kept the law completely according to how the law should be kept, but he persecuted the church. And finally, Acts 22, three and four says of Paul, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law with zealous towards God as you are all, um, all today. I persecuted the way to death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women. I have one more. I said, finally, let me give you one more. One more thing that's, that's said about Paul, Acts 26, 9 and 11. Indeed, I myself must go, must do many things contrary. Let me read it slower. No reason to be in a hurry, right? It's Saturday night. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Thus I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. That means he was on the Sanhedrin. He was on this council. Now, was he on there when Stephen was killed? I don't know. Maybe not, because it seems like he was some, a bystander, kind of like the young guy that they put their coats by. The young man. He says, I, I put my vote, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. Paul compelled Christians to blaspheme. 
and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now, if God could get a hold of this guy and save him and turn him into a leader of the church, then he can get a hold of anybody. And here we're introduced to him. Now, the first part of Acts is going to be about Peter. The second part of Acts is going to be about Paul. We're going to learn all about the ministry of Paul in this book. Verse 59, and they stoned Stephen and he was calling on God saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Where, where had he learned that from? Jesus on the cross. And he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge this sin, them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What a death. Like Jesus, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Lord, don't hold this sin against him. Now in 2 Chronicles 24, there was a priest by the name of Zechariah who spoke against the leaders of his day. And the king commanded him to be stoned. And they stoned him between the altar and the high place. This is what it says about his death. Then Joash the king did not remember the kindness of Jedekiah, his father, that Zechariah, the priest's father, had done for him, but killed his son by stoning him. And as he died, he said, Lord, look on it and repay. So Zechariah's response to being, to being stoned was, look at them and repay them. Get them, God, for me. And in Revelation, there's the soul of the, the, the soul of the martyrs or the mole of the sartors, the soul of the martyrs underneath the altar in heaven and they're asking for vengeance. So I don't see, and God says, hang on a little while longer and he gives them white robes. So I don't see that that's wrong to say, do justly here to what they've done to me. But what a heart and a heart that we should have, Lord, forgive them. And at least one of them was. I, I wonder if Paul owes his faith to, to, to Stephen, who prayed that he would be forgiven of that sin and forgiven of all the things he did, which we just read, that God would call somebody who is an absolute enemy to the church. Now, Stephen prayed like Jesus. Let me read this to you. Luke 23, 33 and 34. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. I don't think these soldiers had ever heard such a thing. And I don't think any of these men ever expected to have Stephen pray for them that they would be forgiven. In Revelation 2.10, it says, do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation 10 days be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. There are many today who are being martyred for the name of Christ who are receiving the crown of life. And we don't know where our world's going. One thing we know about our world is it changes quickly. We don't know where things go, but we are to be faithful unto death. And there is a crown that martyrs receive, the martyr's crown spoken of there in Revelation 2.10. Now, three things in closing. Number one, be ready to give a defense in humility and fear, like Stephen. There, there may be a price to pay, but we still give a defense. Why? Because we're ambassadors. 
of Christ, as if we're imploring people to give their lives to Christ. And whatever you've got to do to equip yourself to be able to do that, you, you, God will give you, bring the things to your memory, but you prepare yourself, get ready so that you can give that defense. Number two, even if we're not martyred, we're supposed to lay our lives down. The Bible says, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, then deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Jesus said, not to live for these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be given unto you. Don't live for the world. These things will be given unto you, but seek the kingdom of God first. Finally, whether we live or die, we live for Christ. Whether we die for him or whether we live for him. Here's an interesting thought. And this is in closing. All right. Don't get scared. I'm, I'm not doing a post-sermon sermon. All right. This is in closing. An interesting thought. If God doesn't exist, then many philosophers have determined life's not worth living because nothing means anything. If God doesn't exist, we're running an empty race. It means nothing. We'll just go to, we'll go to nothingness. If there's, if there's no eternity, then whether I die today or tomorrow, it doesn't matter. If I die 10 years from now, I'm still going to nothingness. Now, these are the heavy thoughts of philosophers about the existence of God and what it would mean if God didn't exist. And some atheists, even the neo-atheists like Richard Dawkins have been very honest about it, saying God doesn't exist and morality is a construct we have made ourselves and morality doesn't really exist. He's been honest about it. But, but if I'm going to nothing, then what I do, what does it matter? If there is no judgment and there is no, there is no eternity and I'm just this, you know, neurons firing in my brain and when I die, I'm gone, what does it matter what I've done here? And this universe will one day die out and be cold and dead in how many billions of years and will be long forgotten. What does it matter what I did tomorrow if God doesn't exist? But if God does exist, then whether I die tomorrow or 10 years from now, I'll live with him forever. So I'm ready to live for him and I'm ready to die for him. If tomorrow I know he's gonna take my life, I'm gonna have to give my life for him, I'll live for him today and I'll live for him faithfully because we have eternity and God does exist. Because if God doesn't exist, this world is chaos, it's madness. What is this existence we live in if God doesn't exist? But God does exist and we'll die for him. And we should, laying down our lives and no longer living for ourselves, but living for him. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but it is Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God. I'm gonna close with Romans 14, eight. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray. Father, thank you that we can take time today to look at this death of Stephen and see that whether he died that day as a martyr or whether he died 50 years later of old age, he gave his life for you and he was living for you and he would have lived for you those 50 years or he would have died for you. And in the long picture of things, that doesn't matter. 
just as if you don't exist, life becomes this empty madness, as the philosophers have told us, that means nothing in the end. It's all vanity. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, said Solomon. Lord, thank you that we have hope in you. Thank you that we have purpose. Thank you that we have moral direction. We pray that we would live with all of those things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.